Hi, this is Jordan. And I'm Brian. And you're listening to The Quality Varies. Jordan. Brian? What's up? How are you? Just dandy. I am sitting literally in piles and piles of paperwork. <laughs> uh, I am I am in I have been in town for not but 16 hours and I leave and I leave town in 10 hours. So I I am in town once this week. Wow. And it is all for this podcast. That might not be true, but part <laughs> of it is for this show. So I am uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, what about uh, what about you, Brian? Have you sold your bike yet? No. No, I uh <laughs> Not even trying at the moment. Just kind of giving up on that for now. You know, honesty. Honesty is hottesty. Um, That's not a word. (laughs) Brian, what do we got going on today? Uh, I think we're being joined by one of our good friends. What's up, Brandon? Yes. Hey, guys. I didn't didn't know if I could jump into your banter in the beginning because you hadn't introduced me yet and people would be kind of freaked out, like, who's this third guy on? So... Yeah, I just let you guys do your thing for a little bit there. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, we gotta. It's a. It's an awkward thing, but we gotta get through it every time. Yep, you're uh, a very good guest. Through by the, the train way. wreck in the beginning. Yeah. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> honored to be joining you guys. This is uh, very exciting for me. This is my first time guesting on a podcast, so I have no idea where this is gonna go. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And we kind of look forward towards the towards the end, talking about some of the work that you're doing with podcasts as well. But Brandon, we met you in Southern Utah as uh, we were all kind of going through our own, our own experiences. But why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of who you are, kind of the big things about your life right now? Why do some why do people care about Brandon McDonald? <laughs> oh, geez, that's a that's a loaded question. Yeah, to give a bit of background, I guess I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and then uh, pursued a path you know, my education of of becoming an attorney. I eventually uh, became an attorney in Las Vegas and did that for 10 years until my life blew up. And uh, that was what led me to meet both of you. I have my own addiction story and uh, my addiction led me to get into recovery. And um, that was when I met you two. After recovery, I decided that being an attorney was not right for me. It was a very stressful profession, and I'm just not built to handle conflict well. I don't know why I thought it was a good idea to become an attorney because, (laughs) you know, I've always been the peacemaker in my family, and living in constant conflict was not good for me and led to me getting into an addiction that almost destroyed everything in my life. Once I got out of out of rehab, I thought, you know what, I need to change my profession. So I ended up approaching the owner of Desert Solace, a recovery center, and asked him what I could do to get into recovery, into like recovery as a profession. And so he invited me to join him in St. George, Utah, and I became the director of operations for the inpatient program and I also started up the outpatient program for uh, Desert Solace. Um, So kind of dual roles there. Since then, in the past three months, I have transitioned into being kind of the director of marketing over Desert Solace. So that's what I'm doing right now and that's a new new career for me, I guess. I, I don't have a ton of 
background in marketing other than just you know marketing my law firm. So I'm I'm exploring this world right now, and it's a new challenge for me to take on. But um, other than that, I've got a wife and four kids, and that keeps me busy on the outside of my career. And other than that, I just bought a dirt bike, so I'm kind of getting into the whole <laughs> you know motorcycling world. Although not, I don't do street cycling. That's that's just for crazy people. Um, we'll get you dirt there. biking. Dirt biking is about as crazy as I'll get. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. That is awesome. And Amazing. dirt bikes are, I just, I just sold my, Brian remembers, I just sold my motorcycle to a gal that has only ridden dirt bikes for a, lot, a while and she has, she has taken the step to road bikes and you'll get there. So you're telling me these are a gateway drug? Yep. Uh, you know, Absolutely. I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> Great. Um, Brian, would you agree? Would you agree with that sentiment? Oh yeah. Once you dip your toe in anything, it's just a, it's a, you know, it's a progression. It's a slippery slope. You just, you just always want more. I do like to remind people that I had no intention of ever riding a motorcycle or doing anything of the kind until my roommate was just selling his bike and, uh, and offered to let me just run around with it in a parking lot one day and then not four hours later, I walked downstairs with a check to buy his bike. (laughs) It, uh, it goes fast, my man. So does yeah. the bike. So does the bike. But um, you got a lot of stuff going on. Initially, I mean, you and I have talked a lot. And by the way, it's uh, might I just say that it's nice to hear your voice when I'm actually at some level of consciousness. Uh, yeah. You and I usually talk a little bit earlier in the in the morning, and uh, we'll just have a quick chat, check in with each other, keep each other keep each other in check on our own lives. But. Uh, We'll probably remember a little bit more about this conversation than I remember about those conversations in the wee hours of the morning. Yeah, your so. your voice sounds much different at this time of the day. <laughs> You're a little bit more gravelly in the morning when I when I wake you up. I don't know why that could be. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I like my Brandon McDonald alarm. It's yeah. it is the most consistent alarm. Well, so. it doesn't wake you up every morning though. I, I've noticed. I get okay. Well, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Uh, one of the things, like, I either don't remember or we never really dived into much, kind of the earlier years, and you said that um, you were, I just want to dive right into kind of your past and getting into the attorney and going from Salt Lake City to Vegas. I can't remember off the top of my head, did you have any other kind of substantial jobs during that time, or what What was some other work history that happened that whole time that you were trying to become an attorney, or was it just a straight shot, full-time school until until the attorney world and uh, the, the world of law. Yeah, it was pretty much a straight shot. I mean, I did have various odd jobs, just part-time jobs. I worked at a, uh, a ski resort for a couple of seasons. Um, That's cool. Yeah, I, I got to, uh, I ran their ice rink there. They had like a little village <laughs> wow. that people would come out and skate on the ice rink. So that was my job there. I think that I played ice hockey in high school. So I think that was like, they thought I was a shoe in for that job. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. Other than that, uh, I worked at UPS for a while, um, just part time. And I also worked at a big O tire store changing tires on cars. So other than that, I never had any real like big boy jobs, you know, that weren't just part time or work, you know, during the summer. I knew from the age of eight years old, I had made a decision and, you know, when we distinguish between decision and choice, in my mind, it was a decision and I had cut off all other, all other mm-hmm. opportunities, 
to go in a different direction. And I just thought, I told myself I'm going to be a lawyer no matter what. And that's my only choice. And it honestly made it easier for me to make it through my younger years, I think, because I always just knew what my next step was. I was never confronted with, hey, what do I do now with my life? You know, there was never yeah, any of that question. Or... Yeah, it was just, I knew I was going to be a lawyer. So I knew, you know, my next step was college after high school. And then after that, it was law school after taking the LSAT. And then after law school, it was taking the bar. And then after the bar, I was getting a job at a law firm. So it was just every step was already kind of set out for me and made it easy on me. And now looking back, I wonder why I let an eight-year-old decide for me what I was going to be doing the rest of my life. You know, I wish I could go back. Eight-year-olds had the most qualifications, obviously. <laughs> right. right. I wish I could go back and talk to that eight-year-old and say, hey, you don't have to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life right now. But oh, well. You know, life, life takes you the way it takes you. And that's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, Brandon. I've heard that story before in I, I, I've heard that story before. Yeah. Just listening to it now, though, it seems it sounded like, uh, well, I thought, man, that that actually sounds kind of nice to just always know exactly where your next step is. So how when you were going down that path, did you feel like safe or or like comfortable just always knowing exactly what you're going to do next yeah i definitely think that there was a an element of safety to that um i think i never had you know i never had to question my choices and i don't know it was just kind of easier to do it that way rather than to let you know anything else get in the way of of what i knew i wanted to do and i think you know, I listened to your guys' past episode on identity, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, being Thank a lawyer, you, even, even though I wasn't an attorney, at, you know, growing up in high school, there was a part of, of like that identification for me where I identified with, you know, wanting to be an attorney and telling people, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer when I grow up. And there was like that level of prestige or whatever that comes with, with telling people that like, oh, he's a smart guy. And you know, I, it wasn't really who I was. I, re you know, I recognize that now, but at the time, you know, I, I identified with wanting to be a lawyer. And so anything that kind of went in the face of that, or like risked me not being a lawyer kind of felt scary in a way. So mm -hmm. yeah, I guess your answer, you know, the, that's the answer to your question. It, it was safer for me to just make that decision when I was younger and stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I can guess the answer to this next question, but Looking back, uh, you said you'd you'd go back and talk to that eight year old. Do you think that you could have benefited from like a a life altering experience uh, anywhere along that path that kind of knocked you from that step after step, you know, kind of progression towards becoming a lawyer? Yeah, you know, I look at it from two different directions. Um, part of me, I in my recovery, I make it it's part of who I am now, not to regret my past. Um, mm -hmm. we always talk in the recovery world about, uh, not regretting the past nor wishing to shut the door on it. And so I take a look at it as though I was meant to become an attorney. I was meant to have that experience and to learn from that experience. Um, so going back, you know, I do say that I wish I could go back and talk to that eight year old. And I think if I had a different mentality at the time that, yeah, I probably would have chosen something different when it's, it's scary, honestly, when you make it through, I don't know how many years of schooling, at least, you know, seven years of, of mm -hmm. post high school schooling 
And then you get your first job and you're like, holy cow, this sucks. You know, I hate, I hate being a lawyer. <laughs> oh, no. And you realize yeah. like, what am I doing? I just spent, you know, almost a hundred thousand dollars on, on student, you know, student loans and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff that goes with it to get to where I'm at. And so there's like that, uh, sunken cost yeah. uh, factor that goes into it. Like, well, I've already spent all this time and effort and money to get where I'm at. And I can't question where I'm at now. I just have to live in misery for the rest of my life. And, mm -hmm. and it, yeah. you know, took, in your head, there's too much inertia right. going that direction. Yeah. It, it took my life almost blowing up to get me, you know, that life altering situation to get me to recognize that being a lawyer is not for me. And, you know, I may have put all the time and effort into it, but that, you know, that's in the past and the past for me now is mainly just it lives in my head and I don't let that be an anchor for me anymore. If I decide tomorrow that I'm going to change careers, fine, you know, so be it. If that's where <laughs> God wants me to go, then that's where he wants me to go. I'll, I'll be, you know, packing up my bags and moving on. <laughs> Sweet. So uh, if you don't mind me asking, how, how old were you when you decided to completely forsake your law degree and your career as a, as an attorney? Well, 38 years old was when everything blew up for me. And, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that was, that was when my wife and I had a discussion about just shutting down. I had my own law firm and mm -hmm. I had employees and that was, that was difficult because I had to have a conversation with my employees about, you know, Hey, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And, and I was lucky to have some very supportive employees who loved me and, and knew what I was going through. And they recognized that, Hey, you know, they, they, they were okay. They moved on to other jobs and they were more concerned about where I was at in my life. But yeah, 38 was when we finally made the choice to shut things down at the law firm or, you know, sell off, sell it off and then move on to new things. And I haven't regretted it since I, you know, there are, times when my ego steps in and I still want to, I, I still recognize like the need to identify as like, well, I, you know, I was an attorney at one time, you know, if I want people to think that I'm, that I'm super smart or whatever, yeah, yeah, that yeah, I've had a yeah. successful career, like, I feel like I need to tell them that. And then I, <laughs> I step back and I recognize like, what am I doing? You know, I don't need these people to like, you know, think that I'm smart in order to like me. I don't need that as part of my identity anymore, but mm -hmm. identities are hard to shed as you guys talked about. It's yeah. hard to let go of that stuff after living it yep. for 26 years. Right, right. We met the past lawyer kind of version of you and we never we never really met the uh, the attorney Brian. Do you feel like there were any big differences as far as like the way you acted or the way that you portrayed yourself? I think the answer is that it's difficult to separate attorney Brandon from addict Brandon in a way because yeah. I, I shed my my career and my addiction around like at the same time, basically. And so mm -hmm. uh, being an attorney was kind of all rolled into that ball of addiction for me. And so, you know, when people talk to me about the changes that they see in me since then over, you know, this was three years ago that, that I went through this. And when they talk about the changes they see in me, I, I don't know if I can attribute it to letting go of my job or letting go of my addiction, but I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the stress that came from my career was definitely weighing me down quite a bit. And, you know, living in addiction while trying to run a law firm is, is very difficult and creates a ton of 
additional conflict on top of just, you know, the conflict that comes from being an attorney. So people tell me today that I, they can see that I'm just more at peace. I'm much more at peace. I'm much more calm. I'm, I, they, they tell me that I look lighter. And that's not just because I've lost some weight since then. It's, they <laughs> actually say, you see, lost quite a bit of weight. Yeah, I've lost weight as well, which is another benefit of, of my recovery routines that I've set in place. But just in general, yeah, I think I I don't want to say I'm a different person because I'm still the same person. I've just shed all the weight that came with this life that I was living that wasn't really me. And part of that was my career and part of that was my addiction. So hopefully that answers your question. It does. And I can definitely relate to you on that. And um, some of the, when you said somebody has commented that you just look lighter, I've gotten similar things when I've run into people in the past month that haven't seen me since I was in my addiction. I was in, I was just in Spokane uh, the other day, ran into some old friends and they were making similar comments and they didn't, uh, they didn't know about my addiction, but yeah, very kind of similar experiences there of just being able to shed all that off and kind of act just free of, of all of that burden. You mentioned, I just wanted to add, like you mentioned kind of making that decision and then going forward with it. But can I ask like the eight-year-old self, like what, like what did you see? Like what did the eight-year-old Brandon see that caused that choice? Do you have family that are in the kind of the law world? Did you see something on TV? Like what, what led to that, that uh, kind of big decision by the small person? Yeah, I, uh. I have, so my family is very driven, I guess, as far as education and career is concerned. And so, you know, my dad comes from a family that's mostly doctors. Um, he's a, he's a, he was an engineer until he retired. And so they're very highly educated, very um, successful people. My oldest sister, she was, you know, she went to nationals for debate she was very good at that and my the sister just older than me she went to duke law school so uh, there was kind of this unsaid rule in the home that if if you're not a doctor or a lawyer then you're a failure so i i i kind of took that on myself as as an eight-year-old and and no pressure sounds lovely yeah it seemed like there were two choices for me i could be a doctor or a lawyer and being a doctor just didn't appeal to me for some reason. I don't know why, but, you know, being a lawyer really did. I thought I can argue with people. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's all it takes to be a good inter- attorney. And so I just followed that path. And I, I thought, I don't know, I, one one of my qualities is that once I decide something, I really stick to it and uh, don't kind of, I don't turn away unless there's something major that, that knocks me off of it. And I don't know if that's, you know, I'm not going to say it's a good quality or a bad quality, but for what, what that means, it's uh, when I was eight years old, I just decided I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm not going to let anything turn me off of that path. And so that's what I did. I can certainly think of times that I would have appreciated that mindset. Uh, I'm sure there were times in your life where maybe that was a little bit of annoying, of an annoyance that... You know, just as far as not being taken off that path, do you, were there other any other paths or doors that kind of thinking back may have been open to you? You weren't open to it at the time, but may have sounded interesting kind of looking back at them. Other opportunities? Yeah, you know, I was I was always good at uh, coding in high school, like computer science was one of my favorite courses. And yeah, you know, I went on a mission for my church when I was when I had just gotten out of high school. And so when I got back I kind of felt like the computer science world had moved so quickly in that time. Like this was when 
you know, computers like personal computers were advancing super fast. And so, yeah, uh, you just you dated know, yourself went, a little bit by calling it a personal computer too. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I grew up in that area. I grew up, you know, I got a cell phone when I was 16 years old. I didn't, you know, and it was a brick phone. Um, <laughs> that's how old I am. So I, when I got back from my mission and I was going to college and trying to decide what I wanted to do, there was a moment when I entertained the possibility of getting back into computer science, but it just seemed like I had been left behind during those two years that I was gone, and I didn't want to spend the time to get caught back up on the computer world. And so I just chose the easier option that was already chosen for me, and that was to you know get a degree as fast as I could so I could get to law school. So that's what I did. Gotcha. I can yeah I can see that. And Brandon as a as a coder. Yeah. That'd be interesting. What would the world be like? We'll never what know. What would the world be like? <laughs> Who knows? Go back and talk to eight year old and make it happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Maybe next year I might decide to go back to school and become a coder. I don't know. Very true. You mentioned uh I know I know for a fact that you have other interests and, and based off my conversations with you, you do make an intention to keep your mind open to kind of what you know what's out there i don't know if there's any any of that since you've started recovery that you're open to talking about as far as different things that you've tried different experiences that you've kind of allowed yourself to have after stepping into recovery and kind of stepping into this new mindset i've uh i've dabbled in quite a bit of other stuff i i have had an interest in going back to school to become a therapist just because i'm very much in that world and yep. very it that kind of stuff fascinates me. I don't know it's that might not be in my near future, but that's always a possibility for me. <laughs> but on top of that, I, I have more of an entrepreneurial spirit. And so since I sold off my law firm, I've explored, you know, opening up other businesses. I mean, I opened the outpatient, which is it was, you know, an entrepreneurial venture for me. That was kind of scary because I I never done anything other than my law firm. And that was in yeah. a whole different realm, but I've explored, I I got very close to pulling the trigger on opening up a, uh, a re- dumpster rental franchise here in St. George. And, and there was just a couple of red flags at the last minute that kept me from doing that. Hmm. I've also tried to talk Krispy Kreme into bringing a donut shop here, but they're, they're not franchising oh. right now. So oh, unfortunately man. that, that was not on the table. Dude. Um, but yeah, I'm always open to other business opportunities on the side that that I could run while I'm still, you know, doing my work here at Desert Solace and and I'm interested in that kind of stuff. I've I've gotten more into investing lately just in some, I don't know, I guess they call it venture cap. I don't want to call myself a venture a venture capitalist cuz that sounds kind of douchey, but I have, <laughs> I have been investing in um, some startup companies lately that have done very well for me. So I, I like being in that world. I just don't know if that's something that I'm ever going to get into full time. We'll see. So that that's kind of a broad description of where I'm at. Yeah. And it certainly speaks to, I mean, it certainly speaks to your state of mind. Yeah. When you see things around you. Well, you know, I do think that there is a certain aspect of the addict mentality that goes into being an entrepreneur. Uh, entrepreneur. I always say that word weird, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think there, there's something to it where you have to be able to handle a lot of risk. And there's, there's always like the highs and lows that come from being in that world. And I, you know, 
honestly, like a lot of the people that I've run into or that I've gotten to know in the recovery world are entrepreneurs. And I think that that lifestyle just feeds into addiction quite a bit. So I have to be careful with myself and recognize, am I going into this with the right intention? Am I being conscious and aware of, of how this will affect my life and my recovery? Because if I'm not careful about that kind of stuff, it can def. I, I know it can offset my recovery and you know set me back. and And to me, my recovery is the most important thing for me in my life right now. And there's another saying in the recovery world. I'm full of these sayings, by the way. So you'll probably <laughs> hear a lot of these. Um, I love but it. They all, they always say anything that you put above your recovery, you will lose. And so you know, for me, I have to be very clear about what my values are. To me, my family, my marriage, my recovery is the most important thing. And I don't want to lose any of that. So those are my values. If my job or, you know, my career, whatever, starting a new business ever comes before my recovery, then I, you know, I don't want to put that at, at risk. I will let it go. I love that. Brian, do you have anything? It got me thinking, hey, Brandon might have money to open up a uh, open up a franchise <laughs> yeah i'm always open to opportunities I, you know people come to me and they say hey are you open to hearing this about this opportunity i never tell anybody no and if it works for me that sounds like a good uh, characteristic for an entrepreneur to have <laughs> right yeah i mean if it works for me then i'm open to it and and if not then i get to have clear boundaries and just tell, tell people no that doesn't work for me sweet yeah i'm excited for the point in my life where i will have some semblance of money and i can uh, i can have some of these conversations with brandon mm-hmm. this is, uh, we've gotten to know each other quite well i imagine and i'm ex- i'm excited for the day that we get to also challenge ourselves on doing something business related yeah because i think that would be super fun right. i can think of a few expenses you could cut out jordan brian i didn't i, did, I, I wasn't talking to you right <laughs> oh okay sorry so we, what? I don't think Brandon. I don't think Brandon listened to the Dungeons and Dragons episode, and we don't need to bring anything about that episode into this one. Yeah, no, I, I didn't say ones. anything. I missed the Dungeons and Dragons episodes. I make it a point to listen to the recovery ones, but I've I've never gotten into Dungeons and Dragons. I've never been in that world, and so it, you know, I I have no idea what you guys would even be talking about. Honestly, you're lost, buddy. I think it is your solemn duty. As a human being that lives close to Brandon, <laughs> to bring to to introduce Brandon into that into the world, that is quite a task. Yep. Maybe uh, maybe we'll just go I have a little you. block party at uh, my brother in law's house. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if I have the time for that. Honestly, I you know I just bought a dirt bike, and so I'm going to be spending a lot of my time dirt biking. Dungeons and Dragons might take me away from that. That's my that's my excuse. In the recovery mindset. Uh, I would call that a scarcity mindset. The world is a full of abundance, my friend. <laughs> my wife um, would disagree with Brent, you. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I may not make that statement so confidently to her as I was with you. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> Brent, you you went to Desert Solace as a client. Um, that's where we met you. Correct. And then I left as a client and I went back to, to my home. Brian also left. Brian was actually our, and I'll have more questions for you about, uh, you know, about this, but Brian was our staff member that watched over us, right. an adult babysitter. <laughs> I was a professional soccer mom. Yes. And then you turned around and you became Brian's boss. 
Yeah, that that is correct. Yes. <laughs> so I'll ask about that later. But I, I initially, you and I have talked about this. But what impact have you did you see in your life from turning around and staying in Desert Solace in that in that different function and and kind of staying in that world? Yeah, you know, it's definitely been helpful for me in my recovery. I mean, there, there's it's great to get paid to go to twelve step meetings and uh, <laughs> yeah. to get to hang around people, you know, who want recovery, who want to be there. I, I'm a huge believer that culture and environment are some of the biggest indicators of how well somebody will do in recovery. I didn't realize it at the time when I was coming to work at Desert Solace, but looking back, I know that a part of this culture and being in this environment almost 24-7 has definitely helped me stay in strong recovery. And, you know, I'm now three three years plus sober from my addiction and and I attribute a large part of that to being where I'm at and being at Desert Solace and just seeing, you know, a lot of people get inspired by seeing somebody who's three years or 10 years or 20 years in recovery. I get a lot of inspiration from seeing the guys who are just coming in and who come in with such a spirit of vulnerability and honesty and they just they they want to come in and do the best they can to like let go of this addiction that has hampered them for so long and that to me that's inspiring i love seeing people because to me the first six months or the first year of recovery is like the hardest thing that i've ever been through and seeing somebody else just take it on and live in recovery is is inspiring to me and that helps me uh, in my own recovery so yeah it's definitely been beneficial for me and I love what I do I love being here and getting to serve the guys that come through it's it's great I love it Brian you you were very involved in a similar way watching people come in off the street metaphorically and make this make this massive choice when a lot of times you know I certainly know for me like I didn't know a life outside of addiction and so making this choice, certainly into the unknown, is there anything else you would add to that experience that kind of just, or any, um, yeah, anything you would add to that experience of just watching those initial couple days, couple weeks? No, I absolutely agree with everything Brandon said. And it, it, yeah, he said it perfect. Um, watching guys come in day one, day two, day three, that's like my most favorite time to get to know somebody even though it's the hardest time to get to know somebody because they're still kind of coming down off of the uh, you know the lust drugs that they've been swimming in for years or their whole, their whole life in some cases. But and this sounds kind of callous, but my favorite was seeing someone come in just absolutely heartbroken and like at any moment they could just crumble and just be crushed under the weight of their own sins with like the faintest glimmer of hope in their eyes just from stepping into the building or stepping into this program was my favorite part of that job because like because you can see it when somebody comes in like that there's and you you can it's just fun to watch them go through those critical moments of recovery where that that shifts and they start to they start to step into their own power and and just realize how much power there is in recovery it's it's yeah amazing I, I agree with that i you know just to jump in i that's it's 
the best time to to meet those guys, but it's also sometimes the worst time as well because I can yes. I can almost tell. I'd, I'd sit down with the guys. Every one of the guys that came through, I would sit down with them and go over kind of the ground rules that we live by or the boundaries that we live by in, in Desert Solace. And I can, I can almost tell. I don't want to say that I could predict their future, but <laughs> depending on could. how depending on how broken they were when they got in to, to see us, I could almost tell how well they were going to do. Cause the guys that came in the most broken, you know, I have a theory that you have to have some kind of an ego destroying event happen in your <laughs> life for you to really take on recovery and whether you destroy your ego yourself or something does it for you, either way, your ego has to go in order for you to stay in, in strong recovery. And, and there are some guys who come in and they just think, I know what to do. Just give me a checklist of things that I need to do to, to you know, overcome my addiction and I'll be on my way. I don't need to, I don't need a sponsor. I don't need to go through tw the 12 steps. I don't need to listen to, you know, these people or to listen to things that I already know. And that just that, that mentality of like, I know what I'm doing and I, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. That destroys people's recovery. But the guys that come in that are like, just already destroyed their ego is is out the door they left it before they came in those are the guys that just do really well in recovery i love seeing that mm -hmm. so based off of that brian i'm, I'm just kind of i'm curious both for both first me and then maybe brandon if you by chance remember anything about when we came in because you were staff at that time mm -hmm. do you remember anything about those those times yeah <laughs> yeah so every every guy's low is different that level of sorry i just punched my desk aggressive over here yeah He's, you're getting into it yeah i yeah. like it the uh every guy's low point or rock bottom is different right and that level of brokenness can look different a lot of times a lot of, i mean there were guys that came in with like literal hunched shoulders and like poor posture but like Brandon, I remember Brandon always carried himself physically upright and like not I mean, proud, not prideful, but, you know, like proud. But there was there was definitely that energy of like like a spiritual sickness that he that he was definitely like very aware of. And like you like looking at you with eyeballs you you could see, you just see like a guy right but like looking at you with an open heart or like kind of with your your spiritual eyes yeah i yeah i remember brandon being very like broken inside like you like I, you could just see it right uh and same with you jordan like uh <laughs> the first staff meeting we had after you came in <laughs> me <laughs> Me and uh, Sweet Lynn, we were just, we just kind of shook our heads like we didn't know what to do with you. Like, there was nothing inside you. Like, she even called you a, just a blob. And so, I don't know if you remember, but that's yeah. what I called you from then on out. Uh, you're just this Which I was super grateful blob for. of a person. Yes. Right. So that's yeah. I think like, I think your nickname was Blobbert after you. Yeah, left. yeah, yeah. Blobbert. Oh, good times. Yeah, I was hoping I was hoping you guys had gone with like Golden Boy or you know some of these <laughs> other things. And so when Brian admitted what I had become, I was like, oh, I I see. I <laughs> <laughs> this is how it is. So like you two were very in different places, kind of, but really you were both at that 
that rock bottom that uh like i don't think that you got that either of you could have taken anything else uh before just crumbling and now like what like three years later we can see the we can see the fruits of being at that that depth of horrible badness it's um it's it's continues to be an amazing an amazing thing for me to see i do remember those first few days I i didn't get to see jordan's first few days so i didn't i i think i got there when jordan was coming out of his shell um, mm-hmm. but I, I remember crying more during those first three days than I, I'd cried in, I don't probably my whole life, but I did feel super broken and just, you know, walking through the doors of desert solace was like the first glimmer of hope that I had got in, I, you know, 26 years. I mm-hmm. thought I had written off myself as, as just an addict and I was always going to be an addict and I was going to die an addict. And I thought, you know, I just want to hide this as long as I can because there's no way I've tried a million times to get over my addiction and I've never been able to do it. And so I just resigned myself to being an addict for the rest of my life. And so when I walked through those doors and recognizing that, Hey, there are people here who have a way that, you know, they claim will lead to recovery. And if, if they claim that they can show me a way to, to let go of my addiction, then I will listen to everything they, they tell me to do. If, if it meant like, you know, sleeping upside down for three years, (laughs) I would do it. It, you know, whatever they told me, I was willing to do it. I can relate to that, you know, seeing people physically often, you know, a lot of times you can see guys who come in and physically you can tell that these guys are just broken Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, when you look at them with kind of your heart, you see that, that there is like a spiritual sickness there. And mm-hmm. I, I, I tell guys all the time when they graduate, I wish I had like a soul camera where I could take a picture of their soul <laughs> yeah. when they come in and then get, take a picture of their soul when they leave, because you can see it in their eyes. Like there's just this brightness that shines out when they leave. And they're just so like, it's almost like this childlike innocence that, that they've let go of all this garbage that they've been holding on to that's been weighing them down and they, they look light as air, like like they'll just float out the front door and, and take on life in a different way. And I just, I love it. That's that's why I came back to do what I do is I love seeing that transformation happen in people. Yeah, and I want to, just the the quick, you know, preface thing on, on this, obviously, the three of us are having this conversation because we met each other in this environment and, and we're very involved in this because those are the choices we made. Obviously there are, you know, people find recovery in different situations uh, that may not involve in treatment. Cause that's a bit, you know, that's a big choice to make. And I've conventions or in interactions with other people, I've run into hundreds of people that have found, you know, massive and greatly, you know, spiritual recovery without this being part of their lives. But I've also found people, or connected with people and probably for myself, especially where in treatment was the thing that was necessary. So it's uh, people, you know, people just get to make their own choices on what level of care they need to get what they, you know, get what they want in life. And so just wanted to, to state the obvious real quick uh, for folks. Yeah, obviously I, I agree with that. I think there are people first who come, come into recovery you know in varying levels of addiction there are some people who just don't don't need inpatient recovery to get what they need 
to get into recovery. And then there are other people who have dealt with the addiction for decades and are just so entrenched in it that getting out of their everyday life is is all that will do it for them. But I do, I will say, obviously I'm a big believer in inpatient treatment and that's not just because I work here, mainly just based on my, my own experience. I just think that seeing people who go through 90 days of intensive treatment and then when you see them out in the world and in their, you know, 12 step groups or recovery networks, they just, they're, they've, they're so far ahead of, of some people who just are stuck in doing what they're doing that I, I'm a big believer in inpatient treatment for people, um, especially when they've just dealt with the addiction for so long. But there are people, like you said, who are able to do it just with 12 steps. And there are some people who need outpatient recovery. And then there are some people who I think need inpatient. It just depends on their, their situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, and we mentioned already on the show that culture and environment are huge parts of recovery and right. how that recovery is going to turn out. Yeah, I think uh, ultimately it just comes down to whatever gets you that spiritual healing. Like some people need 90 days inpatient treatment center. Some people need 12 weeks of going to a meeting. Recovery is an intensely personal spiritual journey, I think, uh, at least in my observation. So yeah, I mean, that's just, I think that's what it really, really boils down to is just whatever gets you that spiritual connection to God or your whatever higher power, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I like it. I want to jump. We're going to, I think we're going to jump in and out of recovery type stuff uh, for the rest of the show but i quickly want to jump over just to kind of your where you were locationally brandon you said that you grew uh you're you grew up in salt lake you worked and spent a long time in vegas um, and now you find yourself in in saint george do you have a favorite i don't i will say i i will probably never end up going farther north than than saint george just because <laughs> wow uh, you know i am insulted yeah the the climate i've become a desert rat really the my blood has thinned out quite a bit and and getting back into the cold just does not it doesn't do anything for me mm-hmm. um even though i grew up snowboarding and skiing it's it's uh the snow just doesn't appeal to me. I don't know. It, um, I love Januarys and Februarys just wearing like a light jacket or a t-shirt. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I'll ever go away from that. Um, so I do love Vegas. There are a lot of things. People have a, an image of Vegas that is a very, a very touristy image where they just see the strip and they think that's all that Vegas is. Um, Vegas is just like any other large city or, you know, any city, I guess, with 2 million people in it, there's a ton of (laughs) suburbs that are wonderful to live in. What I loved about Vegas is that there's, it's kind of the best of both worlds. You can live in the suburbs and stay away from the strip as much as you want. No, you know, I never really went to the strip unless people came into town and wanted to go there. Like family members would come in and we'd take them to the Bellagio or whatever to see the fountains. Um, yeah. but the great thing is, is there's world-class food, world-class entertainment, and you get to, you know, also live just in the suburbs where you can raise a, a family in a normal way. Um, so yeah, there, there are advantages to living in, in Las Vegas over living in St. George. You know, I feel like 
after living here for two and a half years, I've tapped out like every restaurant they have here. <laughs> There's not a lot of eating options, not a lot of entertainment options. And Man, so that took you a long time. <laughs> no, honestly, it was probably within a year that I did that. But, <laughs> yeah, that um, sounds more accurate. Yeah. But, you know, there are advantages to living in St. George as well. Like the just the beauty of you know, that was one reason why I made the choice to come here. When I was in Desert Solace, I remember I was shoveling horse crap and uh, looking <laughs> looking out at like the view in the distance and seeing the natural beauty that surrounds the city of St. George and realizing like there is just like God created beauty here. And I love the way I love everything about it. I love getting out into nature. And so I told myself I will live here one day. I just didn't know that it was going to be within like six months of leaving Desert <laughs> Solace. So, so yeah, yeah, St. George and Vegas, I love them both. I don't think I'd put one above the other. They both have their advantages and, and disadvantages. I hated St. George when I showed up. <laughs> I So when people, I tell people I'm I'm from Washington State and people get this image in their mind of, uh, of Seattle or Bellevue or um, just lush green forests and that, at the time was my version of beauty as well for like nature. So I tell people I'm from Washington and, and missionaries uh, from our church. They say all the time, they're like, I saw that I was going to Washington and I thought I was going to like a Seattle type area and they get off the plane in Pasco, Washington and it's a desert and they're freaked out. They don't know what's going on. So I'm a desert dweller as well. But my version of beauty was like, I would always want to go like, let's go to Seattle where it's like lush and not the desert. Like that's where, that's where it's beautiful. So I get off the plane in St. George and it's like the Tri-Cities. If it, if the Tri-Cities didn't get water for two years, <laughs> it was, and there were more mountains. And I just, I thought it was the ugliest, like who looks at these rocks and, and enjoys it. I, I, I couldn't understand. I do. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> I just got done telling you, telling you how much, how beautiful I think it is, and then you're like, "Who looks yeah. at this crap and like thinks this is pretty?" Yeah, you go enjoy the snowy winters of Idaho, buddy. We'll 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 have fun on our motorcycles and t-shirts in St. George. Oh gosh, not yeah, man. The fact that the fact that you can just ride a motorcycle pretty much all year does have some sadness when I think about my situation and I'm about to. <laughs> it's already snowed almost a foot in Idaho Falls yes. this year about halfway through again for me as well. Um, I can't remember. We, we went on hikes as a regular part of, of our recovery. Um, <laughs> still, I'm not, I'm never going to let it go still at the <laughs> dumbest time during the day. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> 3 PM in St. George in the summertime is statistically stupid. Anyways, <laughs> uh, we were on one of those hikes and I think it was at the top of the white mountains. What are those called? Nothing by that name here. We were probably most likely in uh, Snow Canyon State Park. Ah, Snow Canyon. Yes. So we're at the top of Snow Canyon, Snow Canyon, or some of those areas. I was looking over it, and my perspective changed, and I could see the beauty that Saint George had. Because when I got there, you guys were saying like we were in the car, and Brian was like, "You can you can pull off anywhere in the road, and you can hike anywhere." I was like, "Yes, but why? (laughs) Why would anybody?" Why would anybody do that? <laughs> and by the time I left, it really was like, yes, like I appreciate everything around me. There's a ton of beauty here. And yeah, I like it is it is a fantastic thing in St. George that really in most places you can get off 
pretty much anywhere on the side of the road. And if you hike for, you know, 20, 25 minutes, uh, you're going to find yourself in a great spot. So I would agree with that for sure, Brandon. It would have been better if it was at like 6 a.m. though. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, but you it's wouldn't still have to get up at that time anyway. <laughs> we, I mean, we all we all got more. I My morning routine was the healthiest it's ever been when I was there. <laughs> True. It's still hot. In the summers here at 6 a.m., it's still hot. It never gets below like 95 degrees in the, in okay, the pit of summer. 95 compared to like 113. That's only like 10. That's like, like, that's like barely any difference. Once you get up above yeah, like 110, like, it's all the same anyway. It's all the same, anyways? Okay, yeah. well. At um, 110, I find then fault it's like. In your logic. Yeah, well, after. Once it's hotter than 110, then you like take your sweater off and then it's like, oh, it's kind of hot now. That's disgusting. You disgust me. <laughs> okay, obviously, Tri-Cities and Idaho Falls are both a bit more north than where you guys are at right now, but that is that is just revolting. <laughs> we, do get our, we do get our winters a little bit colder here in Tri-Cities, and Idaho Falls gets it a wee bit colder than that. Mm. So A wee bit. Yeah, see, I just I just see the Tri-Cities, like, I've never been there, but I picture it in my mind after you tell me that it's desert, that it's like... It's just like St. George, but like dark and dreary all the time. Like everyone just walks around, like moping around, shoulders down and their faces. They're like looking at the ground like, oh, why do I live here? Yeah, that's I mean, whenever I think of like the city, I just think it's always like like late evening. Like the sun's always down. (laughs) There's never light there. Like somebody is just filming it with like a blue filter. (laughs) Yes, yes. All right. All right. I respect that. I'm going to have to, I'll send a photo to you guys, or maybe I'll just put a, maybe I'll just go and take a, I'll hike a, I'll hike Badger today that we live nearby and I'll set, I'll have Brian post that on the Instagram. (laughs) Knowing my, knowing my luck, I'm going to forget and I'm going to do it at sunset. So it's just going to hit all the boxes anyways. It's going to prove our point. (laughs) It's going to just prove the point. So, cause I won't want to get up in the morning. So <laughs> it's also getting a little bit, uh, a little bit chilly. It's already that time. So doing it in the morning is kind of a commitment. Got to dress, got to dress appropriately for it. Brandon, what about, uh, hobbies stuff that doesn't, uh, both make you money and keep you sane? Well, maybe it keeps you sane, but things other than work and addiction recovery, what, what are things that you like to dabble in? Maybe if the, if the family's away or when you have, when you have time. Are there any hobbies or sports or activities that you like? So one of my, yeah, one of, one part of my recovery has been going to the gym every day, which, you know, sounds boring and terrible, but uh, it's actually become uh, one of those things. Like my, my therapist, when I left, he said, you need to find some things that, were re- that will replace the dopamine that you got from your addiction. And uh, so he was like giving me suggestions like, going, going to 12 step groups or like going to the gym. And I'm like, man, those things all sound terrible. I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I started working out like pretty frequently. And honestly, like now, if I don't make it, if I don't make it to a, the gym in a day or like so every, every so often I'll skip a day, but like if I miss a day, I can feel it. I just feel kind of down. Um, so I love, I love going to the gym. I also love, I started reading again. I, I found that when I was an attorney, I stopped reading for enjoyment because reading was such a big part of my job that like when I got home from work, I did not want to pick up a book and read. It just sounded terrible to me. So now I read, my goal this year was to read 50 books 
um, which works out to about a book a week. And I'm, I've read 40 books so far this year, so I have 10 books left to read before the end of the year. And I, I love reading. That's become a big part of my life. And other than that, I also love movies, which is kind of a has been a sad habit or a sad <laughs> hobby to have during the past two years, yeah, just yeah. with COVID shutting all that stuff down. But I love going to the movies. I'm really excited to see Dune. Um, mm. That's c- coming out this weekend. I, I read the book earlier this year, or at least I I listened to it on Audible. I like to call Audible my friend, my I friend that, that reads books to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, because so, yeah. I I don't I don't have the time always to like sit down and read a book physically, but you know since my commute is about a half hour each way, I get some good time in the car to to listen to books. And Dune was always one of those books that was like it's huge; it's like eight hundred pages or something. Um, so tackling it like in a fi- in physical form was daunting to me, and I I think I tried starting to read it a few times and. I just realized I'm like, this is not for me to like sit down and read. I need somebody else to read it to me. So I listened to it on Audible and that that made all the difference. So yeah, I'm excited to see Dune coming out. And we just went to see last weekend and I enjoyed that one. It wasn't Daniel Craig's best Bond movie, but I, I, I think it was a good wrap up. It's definitely worth worth it to see it. So yeah, I like movies a lot. Man, I used to like movies. I just uh, I just haven't been like drawn to any movies recently dune i am super pumped for dune uh and i really wanted to watch uh the last duel but oh yeah uh, that one looks that one looks decent Uh, except for uh matt damon's mullet i'm not sure how that's rough dude isn't it yeah (laughs) yeah but yeah like those are the only two movies that have come out Mm, yeah they've been very uh sparse over the past year like i think i've been maybe four or five times over the past like this year Mm-hmm. to the movie theater and uh, that makes me sad because it was definitely yeah. a, a big part of my life you know before covid was going to the movies probably mm-hmm. i don't know at least once two or three times a month i would say i would be wow, in the movie yeah. theaters yeah wow. and i'm aware that you you have a bit of a love-hate relationship uh with the uh, with the movies do you care to expound on that a little bit yeah definitely <laughs> um so, so Jordan's aware that uh, part of my recovery. Yeah, I so I totally get a cheat right now, and I'm using inside information. <laughs> yeah, I uh, insider baseball. I found that since I since I've let go of you know my primary addiction, I my addiction has moved into other areas, and I have you know a food addiction, and I struggle with that quite a bit. Even though you know making it to the gym and being as active as I am, I can, I'm able to like keep the weight off, but I love sugar i love like anything with sugar fat and salt in it i will eat like crazy and uh the movies are a huge trigger for my food addiction because i can't like you know we talked about environment is a huge part of addiction and going to the movie theater is a big trigger for me because every time i've been to the movie theater pretty much my whole life i sit down and i drink a big like 44 ounce cup of coke and get a big bucket of popcorn and then I also like to eat red vines and candy with it. So, <laughs> yeah, I struggle. Like, I have to stay away from the movie theater if I want to, like, eat healthy. And I, I went on keto for a while this year, which was great because I lost a ton of weight. But, like, any time I would go to the movie theater, it would knock me right out of ketosis because <laughs> I just eat a ton of carbs every time I'd go. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I do have a love-hate relationship with with the uh, movie theater itself movies i don't have a problem with it's not their fault 
you know it's it's the movie <laughs> going to the movie theater that it's their fault those those smug punks at the concession stand that are always like oh come buy some popcorn from me you know you want it i'm like you're you're the devil yeah you just walk in and you smell that that stuff that's supposed to be butter right yeah yeah it's it's so yeah great. soda yeah soda's a big thing for me watching movies that's a big thing all the time for me i'll be honest but especially <laughs> like walking into a movie theater and right. like i'm gonna sit down in this chair and what you expect me not to have a soda to sip on like right. that's just crazy to me yeah movie theaters and road trips are always like mm, yep. though i i can just accept the fact that like i'm not going to be able to do those without drinking soda and eating candy because yep. you know road trips growing up it was always like all right let's stop at the gas station load up on some candy and some yes. soda and, and hit the road heck yeah man i have my own vices but luckily both of those things i will say so i grew up popcorn wasn't really a huge thing um i loved nachos so i would just pay the i would just pay the exorbitant amount of money at those places to go get nachos <laughs> My childhood was lived in, like, we always had to go to the theater that let me put the amount of cheese that I wanted on the nachos. Mm. Because if they got to choose how much cheese to put on my nachos, then nobody was going to be happy at the end of the day. <laughs> snacks snacks during that time was never a big, big habit of mine. And then road trips, I just discovered again, because I, I just got back from a trip, uh, are not, like, I just have my water, and I don't really, like, I don't really have a whole lot else with me. I just plan on stopping like somewhere at some point uh, to to get food, so I find that I find that fascinating. It's never been a habit of mine. I find you fascinating, Jordan. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> Don't ever put a bag of potato chips in front of me, though. Okay, there we go. So there's the vice. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the. I will buy. My vice is I will go to the grocery store to make to buy ingredients for dinner, and one of those ingredients is always a bag of chips because I have to eat. While I'm, I have to eat potato chips while I'm making the. <laughs> <laughs> That's healthy. Yes. Healthy so, choices. So, I'm not making any of these comments on a high horse. Here, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, I love that. So, so reading movies, um, those are both big things. Were there any? Were there sports that were ever part like when you were a kid or growing up? You said hockey. How into hockey were you? Yeah, I was I was really into ice hockey. I, so I started out. I grew up in the age where rollerblades were just coming onto the scene, and so then we discovered street hockey. We could play, you know, hockey out on the street. That naturally led into. I went to a high school that had a really great ice hockey program, so I joined that. I joined the team and played ice hockey all through high school. I loved it. I loved ice hockey. I was. I was always like athletic enough to get myself into trouble in sports, like where I could do okay. I was never like the star at any of the sports. So I played tennis, I played golf, I played basketball, but ice hockey was the only one that I really played like on a higher level. So yeah, I, I, I like sports in general. I don't, I haven't stuck with a lot of them now. Once I got into law school, a lot of my hobbies had to drop off. And so, you know, I had a set of golf clubs that like sat in my storage unit for for 10 years <laughs> and uh, collected gust, dust. And I finally just got rid of those. Um, and now I have like people inviting me to go out and play golf with them. And I'm like, dude, why did I get rid of my clubs? What am I doing? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, I enjoy watching sports as well. I like college football and, and basketball. So, 
yeah, I still like sports. Just it's not as big of a part of my life as it used to be when I was younger. I think a lot of people go through that. Yeah, I'm going through that right now. You're going through that right now, Brent? Yeah, I used to love football, but like I haven't even watched a single full football game. I've actually watched more uh, hockey than I have football this year. Nice. Yeah. Who's your Who's your hockey team? I watched. Uh, well, my well. First of all, when I say my team is anything, just know that I know nothing about the team that I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so my hockey team is uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins. Oh yeah. Um, but I did watch the Golden Knights um, play the Seattle Kraken. I watched the first period. They went up 2 nothing in the first period, so I was like, okay, this isn't much of a game, and I turned it off. But it ended up being a pretty close game, I think I heard. Yeah, see, being uh, being in Vegas for as long as I was, I kind of adopted. I mean, they, they started the Golden Knights like the mm-hmm. last couple of years that I was there, and so I, I did get to go see them play in the Stanley Cup Finals, and that was a really yeah. cool experience. Wow. So. The Golden Knights are kind of my team as far yeah, as yeah. ice hockey is concerned. But yeah. growing up, I did I did like the, the Penguins. I loved um, mm. Mario Lemieux. He was like my my ice hockey hero because nice. he was like the anti Gretzky kind of you know. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't be like a homer for for Gretzky. I had to yeah. be like <laughs> the cool guy who was like, oh yeah, Mario Lemieux. He's better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you were the pretentious like off <laughs> right. like the yeah the rivals fan. I see. Yeah, I had to I had to prove a point to people that like mm-hmm. I'm not a you know I'm not that guy I'm not the yeah. Gretzky guy. You're not the bandwagoner. Yeah. Yeah, you're a real fan. I get that. Right. Yep. I like it, and and I can't remember what you've what you've said to me, but I mean, were were video games ever part of your life at any point? Yeah. I, so my parents refused to buy any gaming consoles for us growing up so i was always like the kid that was jealous of people my my next door neighbors you know they always had the newest and greatest gaming console and i never owned one until i turned i think it was 16 and i was able to buy my own so i bought a nintendo 64 when i was 16 and yeah. i bought goldeneye with it and we played no, that nonstop for I don't know how That's long. A good like, like a whole year was just of my life was just consumed with Goldeneye, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, you know that I feel like that was kind of the first like you know big time multiplayer like you know shoot each other kind of game. Um, oh it was so it like it was a it was foundational like, yeah that's that's yeah, really the was. memory for so many people right and that, then i think that short, they would just play that shortly after that like microsoft came out with halo and i think that was kind of the next big thing um yeah. after goldeneye people transitioned from that to from goldeneye to halo but um other than that i played a lot of warcraft in high school um this was, i didn't know that yeah this was before world of warcraft came out i played warcraft 2 with my oh, friends, the, the Warcraft, Warcraft, okay. yeah, over <laughs> over a uh, a dial up internet connection. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm really dating myself. And then, <laughs> and then when I went on my mission, I got home and I kind of just let go of video games for the most part. I, it just, um, I don't know. The, I had a different mentality, and I just felt like playing video games for a long time was just a waste of time for me. And so I let go of that, but. I still can see the draw to that. My kids have a Nintendo Switch and they play Minecraft nonstop. And every so often they'll be like, hey, come play Minecraft with me. So 
I'll sit there and build like an office building or something in Minecraft and oh it, my and goodness. it takes me it takes me like two hours two hours to build this stupid office building and then I get done and I'm super proud that I built it and then I think like why did I just spend two hours building <laughs> something in a fake world you know so I, I don't think video gaming is the kind of thing that I can get my, let myself get back into with my addictive mentality it would just it would take me away take too much time out of my life I don't want to spark anything uh, anything in you, but I will say that I'm pretty sure that the Warcraft that you played has been remastered since <laughs> and has been released in a remaster format. So Ooh. just throwing that out there for the yeah. world. So. Okay, I'll, I might have to check that out. We'll see. <laughs> if I if I can't get a hold of you for a couple of days, I will be concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brian, remind me like your your big thing. Okay, uh, I don't want to get this wrong because we've had extensive conversations about this that people can backdate. <laughs> um final fantasy yep and like kingdom hearts yep that's pretty much it there's a third one things. yeah ace combat was a oh that's like a right yeah arcadey like fi- flight simulator lots of fighter jets that was uh i was yeah. super super big into that yeah so i think for for me probably just because of the the age difference so i was coming i was coming into that right when halo was coming out and so halo and and like halo and gears of war and call of duty those three games were like the beginning for me and that affected a lot my parents did let me play video games so i wasted a lot of time on it (laughs) yeah you missed so much of like the uh the early terrible graphics games that like king's quest i uh my dad kind of he we bought like an early PC in the early 90s and and he bought this maybe the late 80s and he bought a game that goes on it and the game had floppy disks there were five oh, different ooh. floppy disks that it came with so you'd get to a certain point of the game and you'd have to eject the disk and then put a new one in to play the next part of the game um, that's the, amazing I look back on that game with so much fondness and then like I a few years ago, I think I tried to buy a remastered version of it and play it again. And I'm like, this game is so terrible. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> but that back at that, you know, that time, it was so much fun. Um, I love that game. But yeah, you'll have to look it up. King's Quest. That was like my favorite game in the early <laughs> 90s, late 80s. Yeah, I see. It looks like they remastered it back in 2016. Yeah. Yeah, um, that uh, that seems interesting. I I like the floppy disk uh style <laughs> that's that is amazing right that's amazing you hopped over you did law school going all the way through can i ask with the with the family where did you uh where did you and your wife meet kind of on that road so i met my wife while i was uh in college at the university of utah i didn't meet her there but some friends and i went down to my wife is from saint george so we traveled to saint george which is kind of like a it's like the hot spot for you know spring break in utah for uh for utah mormons to to head down (laughs) to saint george and get a little crazy so me and my (laughs) friends went down to saint george for it was a summer like golf trip actually and uh we had a friend who was in school down here she was going to suu and cedar and she was dating a guy that was friends with my wife's group of friends and so he kind of like connected us so i met her in saint george and then we started dating long distance for about a year and then we got married so this was 2003 
2004. We, I got married in 2004. So she moved up and I went to, I finished off my last year of school in Salt Lake and then I got accepted to UNLV for law school. I got accepted to a couple other colleges, uh, universities for law school, but as soon as she found out that like UNLV was an option for us, she's like, all right, that's where that's where we're headed because then we're closer to her family. So, yeah, um, yeah. And I was OK with it because UNLV had a, a really good program for being such a young law school. They were ranked really highly at the time. So I figured it was a good opportunity for me. And and I wasn't looking to go to like Duke like my sister did and, and go work for a huge law firm somewhere back east. I just wanted to work at a law firm you know, in Utah or Nevada or Arizona, maybe in this area. And my dad kind of convinced me that like, if you don't, you know, these law firms recruit locally most of the time. So if you don't want to go work for a big law firm, just go to a local law school and, and you can get a great job here in, in Utah. So that's what I did. And then I got a, a good job working for a big law firm in Las Vegas. And uh, we ended up staying there for a lot longer than we thought we would. Were there any um, were there any odd cases that came about? I um, I'm obviously super ignorant on you know that whole universe. Due to the location, were there any just things unique to you being in Vegas as far as cases that you took that you can that you're able to share publicly? Yeah, I um, had a few like cases that I I would call unique to Las Vegas. I mean, I don't know. I guess. I guess there's strippers everywhere, but I, I represented, <laughs> you know, I represented a stripper in a custody case one time. Um, that was interesting. Uh, I also, I was the attorney on a case where a casino almost burned down. The, the Monte Carlo casino caught fire. I think it was in 2008 okay. and uh, caused like a hundred million dollars worth of damage this fire did. And so I was defending the uh, company it was this welding company that was being accused of starting the fire. So I, I defended that lawsuit. And then the, the, my one claim to fame was that I sued Manny Pacquiao, um, who is nice. a, a boxer. Yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he was in a, a boxing match against Floyd Mayweather a few years ago. I don't, know, I don't want to get into all the legalities of it, but <laughs> I ended up suing Manny Pacquiao and not realizing what <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> the amount of press that this would get. So like I filed, uh, I filed the case and the next morning I get into my office and my paralegal is looking at me with like wide eyes. Like, what did you do? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, he's like, I just got off the phone with ESPN and TMZ and like oh, ABC geez. news. They're all calling and they want to interview you about this case. And he's like, did you sue Manny Pacquiao? And I'm like, yeah, I did. And he's like, well, <laughs> you know, I don't know what to tell these people. So, yeah, I, that was my one claim to fame. So I sued Manny Pacquiao. Nice. That's that's fun. Were you, I mean, were you able to step into that or was it kind of like a deer in the headlights situation? So it was a class action lawsuit and I, the hope was that we would be able to keep the jurisdiction in Las Vegas and then... You know, they, they hold a hearing, the, the, uh, these class, ash, class action courts hold a hearing like around the country to determine like where the jurisdiction will be held. Um, attorneys around the country that were arguing like, oh, it should be in California or it should be in New York. And so the court ended up deciding that it was going to be in California. 
And at that point, I just decided it wasn't worth my time to continue to represent, you know, these people in this case. So I handed them off to another attorney who was in California who could represent them. You know, there are firms that were much bigger than me that that handle class action lawsuits like for a living. Like that's what that's all they do. And so I figured these people would be much better represented if I just handed them off to one of these these um, law firms that do it full time. So yeah, I wasn't, I I probably could have handled it all the way through, but it just, it didn't fit me at the time. And that's always appreciative to, you know, not try to, not try to just hold on to the money and recognize that they might be just taken care of better. Right. Elsewhere by somebody else. That's always nice to hear in multiple different industries, that kind of mindset. Yeah. I was often a terrible salesman as an attorney because I, most of the time people would come to see me and I would try and talk them out of filing a lawsuit until I'm like, you are crazy if you want to file this basically. Like you are going to pay, the attorneys are going to make a lot of money off of you. And in the end of it, a lot of times people just get a piece of paper, you know, they'll get a judgment against somebody. And all it is is a piece of paper that tells them, Hey, this person owes you, you know, $50,000. Now you have to use that piece of paper and go try and collect money from these people. And a lot of times those people don't have $50,000 to pay you. So you have a worthless piece of paper that says you're owed $50,000. And so, (laughs) you know, a lot of times people would just leave my office like, well, I guess, I guess I'm not filing a lawsuit. And I don't know. (laughs) I'm a big believer that, you know, they'll, they'll probably be happier with me if I steer them the right way from the beginning rather than just taking their money and filing a lawsuit that they'll end up being unhappy about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I will, I would certainly be appreciative about it because yeah. that's a, you know, I know walking into one of those offices, I would walk in knowing absolutely nothing. And so I'd like to think that in some situations I might know my way around and know if I'm being kind of having the wool pulled over my eyes. But, but if I was ever in that situation, it probably like, I would probably be none the wiser. Yeah. And even sometimes when people are the wiser, they'll recognize that, um, or they may not recognize it, but I'll tell them like, if you want to litigate out of pride, you know, I'm willing to do that for you. But as long as, (laughs) as long as you understand that, like, this is all about your ego, then that's fine. I had a guy tell me like, look, I will take this all the way to the end just because I hate this person and I don't care how much money it costs me. And I tell him, I said like, you know, here are the downfalls of doing that. And he's like, I don't care. I'm still going to do it. So, you know, I made a lot of money off of that case and, and he just litigated out of pride and, and got what he wanted out of it, I guess. But <laughs> egos can be very costly for people, especially in the legal world. Wow. Yeah. And we just, uh, I loved the conversation that we had and I was, uh, that conversation that we, that last recording on ego, I walked into that conversation very ignorant because Brian, you were able to edify me just on kind of where where ego really came from. So definitely has an impact on our lives for sure. Yeah, were you ever surprised by any of those cases? Like the, the litigate out of pride cases? Like was I surprised at how they ended out or how Just like surprised like, that far people would Yeah, like would take how it? far people were would go out of spite just to try to hurt somebody else. Yeah, I mean I don't know. I I don't want to say surprised because I think it's something that I just became accustomed to by mm-hmm. being in that world for, for 10 years. I was able to see people, you know, you just recognize that like this guy's just litigating out of anger or, you know, pride. Um, his pride is hurt and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to let, let go of it. He doesn't want to back down because of it. So 
it wasn't really a surprise to me, but I did see people take it way farther than I would have thought they would or or I thought they should. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it, it becomes so costly for people. But there are people out there that have so much money that they don't know what to do with it and they don't care. You know, they're able to just satisfy their ego by throwing money at it. What a world. Yep. That's why I got out of it. Yeah. I've got a question. Um, yeah. So I, years ago, I worked at a window company and I delivered windows around town. But our biggest client, our biggest account was actually a window distributor in Las Vegas. Yeah. So I, I was down in Las Vegas uh, every Friday for a while. And I just remember seeing... Like coming into North Vegas past that uh, that uh, equipment auction place. Uh, what's the name? Richie Brothers Auction. Right. Yeah. So right just past that, there's just it seemed like we just like entered a hallway of billboards for law firms, and yeah. they were all they all had like the main person's face just like taking up a third of the whole billboard. Did you ever yeah. have a billboard like that with your with just your face and name up no. in, in Las Vegas? Okay. No, I uh, I considered actually there was a period where I was considering doing like parody billboards where I wanted <laughs> to just make fun of the other attorneys who had those billboards <laughs> uh, like that. Those. Sounds yes. that sounds so much like Brandon. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> there was there was an attorney who. Um, has a series i think he still has a series of billboards up in vegas and it says in big letters voted number one attorney and then there's like kind of an asterisk and at the bottom it says like buy this legal magazine that nobody's heard of Um, and so (laughs) i wanted to get a a billboard that says like my mom voted me the best attorney and then just have a picture have a picture of my mom with like two thumbs up and like oh that's great and then I wanted to do another one where I was just like holding a mug and sitting in my chair and the mug just says world's best lawyer. And uh, <laughs> I, don't I had a ton of ideas of like the ways that I could parody, parody the other attorneys who had like those tacky billboards up. But yeah. it's crazy in Vegas. That's I don't know. They they have a corner on the billboard market there. The attorneys do. And, yeah. you know, traveling through Utah when I when I drive up to Salt Lake to visit my my parents and I see like the billboards for attorneys there of maybe like five percent of the total. I'm like, I could just move to Saint to Salt Lake and buy up all the billboards and just kill it as an attorney. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just yeah. corner the market there because it, it's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why they don't do it in in Salt Lake, but they do in Vegas. But it's crazy. I mean, we're we talked about ego a bunch, and like even back then, before that was when I was not very far in my uh education but back even then i would just see those billboards and be like wow that guy's ego is huge right yeah (laughs) you kind of do have to have a big ego to be in that world yeah yeah did you know we we're going to be talking about marketing at some point in the future um and i find i find billboards very interesting because the billboards are not something that at least consciously work on me uh, but you're on the other side of it. Were you aware of any numbers or any returns as far as those those statistics on Billboard versus you know call-ins for that? Yeah, it's hard to say because it a lot of it depends on where the billboard is and like I I have crazy stories about 
um, the billboards that they have when you leave the airport, there's, you know, like the off ramps that come out of the airport and there's just tons of billboards in that area and they're all directed kind of toward the tourists. Um, Mm -hmm. but I've heard stories that those are, you know, anywhere from like 50,000 a month up to like a hundred thousand a month to pay for those. And I'm like, I can't imagine that they're getting any return off of that, but it's brands like like Cartier or these luxury, you know, Louis Vuitton that just have to spend a ton of money on, you know, on those billboards, I guess, to get people to recognize their brand. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, billboards are more directed toward like what's called top of mind advertising, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're not like searching for that brand, you know, specifically like at the moment. But when something happens in your life, like, oh, my, my toilet's clogged or I have like a, you know, I have a flood or whatever in my house. And then you think like, oh, I know of this, this plumbing company because I've seen their billboards all around town. Like that's kind of more what they're, they're directing it towards, you know, it's just like, so that when something happens in your life, you kind of remember this, you know, this attorney or this plumber because you saw their billboard or heard their jingle or whatever it is at at some point, you know, that's not like, like nowadays, a lot of people just go to Google and they search for something. And that's why people pay a lot for pay-per-click ads on Google. But uh, billboards are directed at like a completely different type of of audience or a different um, scenario. Yeah. Well, and we were, we were talking about that extensively in the last episode of I find the top of mind advertising just to be, you know, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. So I could see that being kind of the main thing that billboards serve as, as a purpose on that. Right. So we have, uh, we got to wrap up here shortly, but I wanted to, unless there was anything that you um, had, Brandon, on your end, I wanted to dip back into kind of addiction recovery and just like you've had a ton of experiences. And like we said, like you stayed when I certainly left and, and Brian is in a different uh, environment now as well. Um, and you've, you've stayed in this um, culture for quite a while now. Is there any messages or anything that you just, that you personally just try to express to people whenever you meet them um, about a recovery as far as either, you know, people that don't know much about addiction recovery and, maybe how important it is to that it be talked about openly or people that are in experiencing addiction, just anything come to mind that, uh, that you wanted to share with the audience? Not specifically. I mean, I, I came into this interview just being open to whatever you guys wanted to talk about, but in, you know, in my experience, I think I don't try and hit people over the head with, with me being in recovery or, or, you know, and I don't, addiction isn't often the first thing that I talk about when, even though it is a huge part of my life, I find that like people who are struggling, they, they kind of find their way to me. You know, if, if they're, I'm open about it. I tell people my story when, when the time, when I feel like the time is right. And I think generally people know, you know, who I am and what I've been through. And so it is kind of like that top of mind when, when people do go through a situation like this, often, you know, we'll have friends call us or, or people that we've met who are like, Hey, I, I remember like Brandon, he's, you know, he's in that recovery world. He's been through his own, his own journey and so they'll often find their way to me and I do my best to steer them into, you know, what I think would help them the, the most. I I think that like 
you know, some some amount of therapy or, or having like a good therapist who is specializes in, in the type of addiction that, that someone is dealing with is very helpful. I don't think that anybody really can stay in long lasting recovery without getting involved in a recovery network. Um, I'm a huge believer in the 12 steps and, and not just like being going to the meetings, but also working the 12 steps and getting a sponsor because I think accountability is uh, crucial in recovery. So yeah, I mean, I there's a lot of stuff that that I can tell people about how to how to live like life in strong recovery. But I kind of if they're not open to it, I find that it's it's kind of wasted on certain people if they're, you know, if they're not interested, or I can tell that they're just you know, they still feel like they're like those people we talked about earlier that like, some people just think they know what to do. And, and they think that through their own willpower, they can, they can handle it. You know, it's just, it's like another challenge for them to overcome. And, and for me in my life, I found that I was never able to do that on my own. And I ended up having to get professional help. 90 days of inpatient treatment was what worked for me. But some people they have their own methods and and forms of recovery so yeah that's about it's about all i got i appreciate it man yeah. yeah brian do you have anything on uh on your end as um to kind of wrap things up i just want to say like this has been really fun for me uh just kind of hanging out with you guys again i don't keep in touch with many people from desert solace but i'm really really glad that I do keep in touch with you guys. I've said that a lot, and I know I've told both of you that you guys inspire me greatly. And this is another this is another time that I'm just grateful that I that I know you guys and that I'm that I have you guys in my life. So thank you, Brandon, for joining us. Thanks for sharing part of your story and and hanging out with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We uh, we do need to you know keep in contact in in other forms. I. You know, I don't always have to be like a guest on the podcast for you guys to to communicate <laughs> nope, with me. Every, no, nope, every time. <laughs> yeah, no, but I I would I do want to say I, I'm glad that I had this opportunity. This has been fun. I am very impressed that you guys are able to do this. Like people people listening to podcasts, I think don't recognize often enough how difficult doing a podcast is. And I've talked to Jordan extensively about my struggles with. I've wanted to do a podcast for like two years now and I have I have all this like fancy recording equipment that I bought like my addict was telling me like oh you got to go out and buy all that fancy equipment and you know then you'll have a good podcast <laughs> and then I, I started recording and I realized holy cow this is way harder than it sounds you know when you're just listening to somebody you have no idea what goes into it and it takes a lot of like dedication to get something like this done so kudos to both of you for um doing what you're doing i i appreciate it. one day i will release my my podcast and and i will let you guys know about it but um it's uh i have like several episodes in the can that are um waiting to be edited and uh i'll get to that one of these days Awesome. Absolutely, we do. We definitely said that for like a year before we posted our first episode. <laughs> oh yeah, so, yeah, and yeah. I'll get ahead of the game before Brian says anything, and I'll say I can I can relate to you in feeling like I need to buy all the equipment <laughs> as I sit here in front of my three monitor uh, command center that definitely isn't necessary for anything that I do. Um, I appreciate you having kind of joining us, and yeah, as soon as 
kind of the discussions that you've had with me about what you've recorded, it fully lines up with a lot of the things that Brian and I agree with. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to kind of sharing that as soon as you post it with our own audience and having them go listen to that. Um, Because I think people will definitely find value in it. Well, now now that you've said that, I'm going to record like a racist episode and then you'll be like oh, oh man why okay. did i why did i endorse that <laughs> i'm like qu- quickly go into emergency disassociation mode like <laughs> i apologize for endorsing brandon's podcast i did not know he was he was a huge racist i'm just kidding yeah, i'm bro- not a racist don't don't quote me <laughs> hey i can i have i have editing powers here yeah I can, if i, I ever run that. for president this is going to be problematic yeah <laughs> I'll let, if I ever have to, if we have to have to deal with disassociations, I'm just going to, uh, Brian, you're going to get that text from me like, Hey, I don't want to deal with this. Can you make that Instagram post? <laughs> Done. But he's dead to I, us. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think that'll be an issue, but, uh, but yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you again, Brandon. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, we will see you guys, uh, for everybody else, including, uh, Brandon. Uh, we're going to be talking about lots of Dungeons and Dragons in the next episode. Oh boy, my friends. Um, oh boy. Yeah, we are going to be catching up on all the Critical Role things that we have not been talking about over the last uh, however many months. And so look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brandon, I expect you to catch up on all uh, 500 hours of Critical Role uh, by in the next two weeks. So good luck <laughs> on that. I'll see what I can do. All right. Sounds good. Right. Thanks, guys. Until then, remember, don't believe anything we say.